Welcome to the Startup Climb Podcast. I'm your host, Yi Huin. Startup Climb is a weekly podcast show where we bring you conversations with startup founders. Through the podcast, you will gain a behind-the-scenes look at their journey, their struggles, and what it takes to run a startup. On this episode, we have Rushdi, co-founder and CEO of Reactor. Reactor is a startup that aims to cultivate entrepreneurship for students aged between 14 to 24. Welcome, Rushdi. Hi, Rushdi. Hello. Hey, you guys. Hi. So, um, for listeners that might not know of like Reactor School and your team, could you share a little bit on what you guys do? Right. Um, hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Rushdi. I'm the co-founder of Reactor. Reactor designs and develops entrepreneurship programs for high schools and universities specifically for students between the ages of 14 to 24. Right, but why this particular age age range? Well, I think one of the things that I wanted to help is that, you know, a lot of students go into university, but they don't make the best use of the resources that the university has, right? So you see a lot of co-founders starting their first company after they graduate from university, but they may not have gone for an exchange program that was entrepreneurship related. Um, They may not have joined the incubator program that the school has, et cetera, so on and so forth. So... You know, we posit that right. it would be a great idea to get students exposed to some of these concepts um, at a high school level so that they make full use of the opportunities that the colleges give them. Right. So how do you even stumble across this concept or idea in the first place? Like, was there a problem that you identified? Um, it's quite interesting. I think the genesis of it happened uh, when I took part in a competition when I was an undergraduate. So there was this right. um, thing called the Junior World Entrepreneurship Forum. And I wrote a white paper about why I felt entrepreneurship education was so important. So my team came in champions and the judges said, you know, hey, I think you're onto, you, you're onto something. Why don't you do something about it? Um, and we did, right? So basically I designed a program uh, for a high school in Singapore. And then we graduated 30 students at the end of the year. And we thought it was a great idea to bring this to other schools, not just in Singapore, but around the region. So right now we have around 86 schools um, all over Southeast Asia, which are running our programs. And they are at the high school level and at the college level. Right. So is it difficult to go into different markets? I would assume that because like the education system in Singapore would differ from that in like Malaysia or like Thailand. Is it difficult to penetrate the different markets around Southeast Asia? Yeah, I think first and foremost, you need to understand that uh, when you look at Southeast Asia, it's not just looking at countries, it's looking at cities. Like Hanoi itself right. is a city does have some nuances compared to Ho Chi Minh. And then on top of that, you're looking at the education system in each of these metropolises. So like Manila, like Kuala Lumpur, Singapore, Jakarta, so on and so forth. So understanding like the nuances of each city and how to hyper-localize, I think was really important. Right. So how do you get about hyper-localizing, I guess? Like what were the methodologies that you used? <laughs> And really, I think, frankly, it was just me flying down to the city, meeting people, getting to know people there, um, talking to the educators, talking to the students, talking to the principals, uh, going to trade fairs and, and really understanding firsthand what it's like. And then meeting other partners who could introduce me to other people who are within that ecosystem. I think a lot of these nuances I picked up from having traveled around. So I'm really fortunate that I had the chance to do that. Um, and then picking up their language, you know, picking up. Uh, and I, I even did things like, you know, learning how to cook. For example, when I went to Hanoi, right. you know, I learned how to cook when I went to Bangkok. And then you could talk about some of these things with your business partners and your uh, peers when you were there. And having understood the culture better, right, that gives you the context of understanding 
the social, political, and economic background for the specific city that you're trying to enter into. Right. Right. And then after that, that's when you apply that business acumen to figure out what is the best go-to-market strategy for each of these cities. Right. But it sounds like this whole expansion thing will be quite capital intensive. So like, I guess when you first start um, Reactor, you might not have a lot of resources and most startups bootstrap, right? So how do you choose where to allocate the resources uh, when you first begin? Right. Um, so usually what we do is that even before we go down to a specific country, whether it's to set up a representative office or sign distributorships, um, you obviously do your own homework and your market research first, right? Right. So secondary research, um, talking to people online. In fact, now it's really, really easy to network by just reaching out to people either via LinkedIn or Twitter or Facebook and having a Zoom chat with them or having a Google Hangout with them and asking them what the context is like in, in their right. home cities. And then, you know, after you've gotten a certain number of data points, right, you then make a calculated decision of whether you want to travel there. Um, and even when I travel, um, you know, you've got budget airlines right now, right? So that's not too expensive. Right. And when I, when I stay at hotels, I don't stay in really fancy hotels. It's always boutique hotels. And if you check out my Instagram, I tend to review like boutique hotels, which cost like less than $70 or less than $60 per night. Uh, but right. I'm still within the city center and stuff like that. So I think, you know, being, being a co-founder um, in this time and age around Southeast Asia, it's really exciting uh, because a lot of things are way more accessible now than they were, say, 10 years ago. I see. So like, let's talk about... Um your first hire then? What were the qualities they look for in your first hire? Right, uh, that's interesting. So for me, as a, my first hire, I wanted someone who would be able to grow and adapt their skills with the needs of the company. Right. Right, because the, the fact of the matter is um, you want to have someone who's complementary in terms of skills, but at the same time, you need someone who will be able to adapt because what the company needs now in the seed stage is going to be very different 18 months later when you're the post-seed of Series A. Right. Yeah. So having someone who I guess is a good generalist um, helps. And then the other thing that was non-negotiable was alignment in terms of values as well as the mission of the company. So the how right. and the what can change, but the why in which someone decides to join you and struggle alongside you, I think that is really important and shouldn't change as the company grows. Right. But these are the kind of qualities that probably need like some form of long-term observation to, to sort of spot, right? So how do you tell like at the interview stage when like maybe most founders will not have a lot of time to actually seek out candidates, right? Right. Um, it's interesting because one of my co-founders was an intern who never left, right? right. Um, yeah, so he joined us as an intern and he thought he was great. So he said like, hey, you know, I've got to clear my internship Um component of school in order to graduate. And I was like, yeah, you know, sure, come join us as an intern. And then I was like, hey, you know what? I think it's really cool. Why don't you join us part-time with business development? And then a few years later, you know, why don't you just join us as a co-founder? I think you have what it takes to help us bring this company really far, right? And really this is done through observation. It's done through working with the person. Our personality is something that you see when you interact with them, but Frankly, character is what you see when someone goes through an extremely difficult time. Right. Yeah. And you've got to have enough opportunities to test each other's character and to see whether, you know, um, their values remain the same and they are really who they profess themselves to be. Right. So, like, I'd just like to check if, like, how, how, how do you profit or, like, what's the business model behind Reactor? 
Right. So we're, we're a B2B company, um, meaning to say that we charge the schools, right? And then usually most of our students uh, get to participate in our programs uh, for free, if not at a discounted rate. Right. Uh, we also syndicate deals with other venture capital firms, right? So for example, if any of our students are raising funds, uh, we'll syndicate a deal and then we get a carry out of that. Meaning to say we get a certain percentage out of that fundraise um, or we own a little bit of shares in the company um, at that fundraise stage. Right. So would yeah. you say that you're essentially an incubator or like an accelerator of some sort where... We are. We are pretty much. Uh, we're a startup school and an incubator, basically. Right. So like, I would say there are different models of this like in the US or like the UK, the bigger markets where there are um, venture capital firms that also act as an incubator and stuff. So like, in your case, how do you feel the Southeast Asia market or like the demographic of the Southeast Asian uh, differs from that of like the bigger markets like the US or the UK? Frankly, I don't think it differs that much. I think right now in terms of um, right. the venture capital market across Southeast Asia is starting to be more mature. So you're looking at um, more savvy investors coming in, uh, the ticket sizes are starting to get larger or they invest in more multiple rounds or they syndicate more deals. It's more complex, right? Where previously, um, when we're in the early stages, a lot of it was driven by angel investors. And now you've got more angel investors entering the scene and as an entire ecosystem is starting to become more sophisticated. I think Startup Genome just launched their report, um, top 100 most entrepreneurial cities, startup cities. Singapore was 17. Uh, right. for 2020, right? Uh, I think it moved up a few notches. So that's great. And you're starting to see a lot more Southeast Asian cities, whether it's Jakarta, Bangkok, etc., becoming more sophisticated as well and rising up the ranks. So as a right. whole, I think the region is is climbing up and, and catching up to their peer cities like Silicon Valley. Right. So like, let's go a little bit back towards like, the education space in Singapore. Could you share a little on like the education space in Singapore? And is it like, do they have like barriers to entry and is it like a very high barrier to entry? Right. Um, let's split it up into different markets in Singapore. So you have public education, which is your MOE schools, right? And I think right, right. now we have around 347 odd MOE schools. And then right. you've got your public institutions. So this includes your universities and your private international schools, United World College, James Academy, um, you know, James Cook University, etc. Entering the market um, is different depending on which sector or subsegment you're looking at. Um, and then it also depends on the vertical because edutech is really, really, really broad. You've got everything from content, you've got learning management systems, student management systems, teacher management systems, you've got um, accreditation, you've got testing, you've got uh, language learning, you've got tuition services. Yeah, so there's like a whole bunch of verticals even under edutech. And for each of these verticals, there are different ways in which to enter the market. I think what's interesting to note of is that you know, if you are looking at entering the public markets in Singapore, so the MOE schools, you will be subject to things called right. um, an ITQ, or an invitation to quote. So that's when the school will ask for three quotes. They'll make a comparison. Um, so you can expect a sufficient amount of competition for whatever funds you're bidding for, for a public school. Right. If you're looking right. at private education, um, they have their own procurement systems, um, but their systems are not as unified. So different international schools or different um, levels, right? whether it's at university or high schools, have nuances in how they do their procurement. So you need to understand and uh, be able right. to adapt to that. Right, but 
are there any like um pushback when it comes to you trying to educate youth about entrepreneurship? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, in the early years when we were starting, a lot of schools just told us in their face that this is not my priority. You know, my priority for my students right. is art, or my priority for my students is music and stuff like that. Um, and it was really difficult to explain to the principals or to the boards of the schools, you know, why this is going to be so important for the students. Um, I think that has reversed a little bit, you know, um, ever since Web 2.0 came about and you're starting to see a lot more entrepreneurial development and people are not accepting being co-founders as, you know, a viable career option. Right. Yeah. So do you feel like reactors sort of was at the right space and the right time, just nice when the lens or the views towards entrepreneurship is changing to a more positive tone? Yeah, I think so. I, I dare say that we are like one of the pioneers in the space because um, not only have we been copied before, you know, but we, I think we've also done a good job at testing out new things and sharing this with the wider community. So we've done stuff with the Ministry of Education, the Ministry of Culture, Community and Youth, um, and sharing our best practices, not just in Singapore, but around the region as well. So I've had the chance to explain what Reactor does uh, to different ministries right, um, across the region, whether it's a department of right. science and technology or whether it's a department of education overseas. So I guess we're we are a thought leader in that space. Um, one of the things that I think we do very differently is that we have an Asian slant to the entire syllabus. So most of the time, you know, a lot of students are very used to seeing Western co-founders or entrepreneurs, but we have a huge lot right. of really good um, Asian entrepreneurs and Southeast Asian entrepreneurs as well. And the context in which you operate in Southeast Asia is very different from what you would see in Southern Land. Right. Yeah. So I think having great role models is really important for the students. Right. Okay. So um, can we go a little bit into like, how do you develop the syllabus? Because I think we were, we touched a little bit onto that. Like, how do you even choose and curate or like even make entrepreneurship into a like a subject with like topics and stuff. Right. I think in in the early stages, um, a lot of it was trial and error. And what we did was that we had a board of academic advisors who were all entrepreneurs. Right. And we asked them literally, what do you wish you had learned about startups and tech when you were 15? Right. Right. And then we started breaking those down and then we came up with a taxonomy of things that you know we thought that young students would learn. Pretty much just kind of building a mini MBA course, but for high school students, but geared around hard skills and geared around things that they should learn as a junior co-founder. And then as our alumni developed, um, you know, we had more students that have graduated and raised funds of their own. Um, what we're doing next is that we're forming a board of alumni advisors. So these are students who have graduated right. and we're now asking them to mentor us. So it's reverse mentoring. I think that's something that we, we need to do to constantly ensure that the syllabus is current and that you're using the right methodologies and the methodologies that make sense. So the third element is involving um, the industry specialists, right? The angel investors and the venture capital firms. So VCs have an investment thesis behind what they want to invest in, how they want to invest. So as we are building the syllabus, we are looking to produce teams, um, startup teams, which are investable. And that's the third layer in which um, we get feedback with regard to the syllabus. Right. So let's talk about investability then. Like what makes a startup investable? Right. So that's a really complicated question because different VCs have different investment thesis. Right. Some, right. some VCs are, you know, I'm going to give you money, you're going to grow, 
as fast as possible at all costs, and then figure out the monetization strategy and then switch on the monetization switch, right? Other VCs kind of have a spray and pray mentality, so they invest across different clusters, or they invest in two competing companies within the same cluster, and they expect one to eventually buy off the other. And then you've got other VCs that employ something called patient capital. So they give you money over a rather longer period of time, you know, rather than the average seven years. Um, and, and these VCs, for example, might expect you to have an asset-like framework, um, meaning to say you spend a little bit to grow a little bit, to spend a bit more to grow a bit more. Yeah. Right. So there's no one surefire way um, in how to become investable. I think what's important is that if you're raising funds from a VC, you understand who you are as a company, you understand the investment thesis of the VCs that you're approaching and find a best match. Right. But um, just to ask you something like, um, with regards to like things that I read online, like, is it important for a startup to be profitable in order to be invested? <laughs> a, okay, so that's that's kind of like the question, right, on, on everyone's mind, post WeWork, post Airbnb, right. post um, Honest B, right? Like, Silicon Valley's new strategy now is to be profitable. And we saw that circa 2019 um, leading up to this year. I think it's it's right. a sign of the times. I think it's something that the VCs are more wary of. So you must understand that when VCs invest, um, they invest in syndicated deals. Sometimes two competing VCs might invest together in the same deal. Or sometimes they might do an earlier round with the expectation that they get a higher valuation from another round, which means that some other VC has to say like, yes, you made a good bet and I'm willing to pay more at a premium at a later stage. Right. So frankly, you know, it's really willing buyer, willing seller. Now the question is, with all these cautionary tales, you know, I guess people are starting to see that maybe I'm not so willing to buy at, the, at, the, at such a risk, right? Or maybe I'm not as willing to sell if there isn't sufficient risk. So that's why profitability right now is, is a key concern, not just for the VCs, but for the startups, because we have cautionary tales right. to look at and to learn from. Right. So I'd like to um, move this conversation slightly towards the current situation, like with the whole like measures, uh, work from home and the whole pandemic. Um, I would say Reactor would have to move to an online uh, workshop instead of like a face-to-face workshop. So like, what was the impact that COVID had on your company and like, how do you pivot from it? Right. I think luckily for us, we, we managed to pivot um, relatively fast. So like everything right now is run completely online. Um, I think what worked for us was that the whole pandemic situation was a forcing mechanism to get our schools to be open to different mediums of teaching. Like we, we always had the intent of going completely online. It's just that this whole situation just accelerated faster and basically forced our schools, forced our clients, our teachers, our parents to be open to such a thing. So that worked in our favor. Right. Um, if you're talking about how the education landscape is likely to shift over the next few years, uh, I have a few personal thoughts, maybe, um, if you'd like me to share. Yeah, for sure, for sure, just share. Yeah, so, you know, I think that you're going to see an increase in something called the earn-to-learn mentality, where people, sorry, the learn-to-earn mentality, where people are going to learn things with the intent that increases their um, pay, right, or their salaries or their allowance in right. very short term. You're going to see the rise of academies. So these are companies like General Assembly that are doing skills-based training um, that strongly linked it to jobs. You're going to see the rise of income share agreements 
Uh, this is really big already in the States. You need to say that when you go through a program, you pledge a certain percentage of your future income as tuition fees. So it's kind of right. like a micro loan for, for, for learning. Um, and already across Southeast Asia, you've got a lot of micro loan companies uh, like InvestEd in the Philippines, you've got Pintech in Indonesia, and they've raised several million, I think, um, in Series A. And just, yeah, so we're going to see like a rising middle class in, in Southeast Asia. Now, what's interesting is to see how the American schools and universities are going to adapt, right? Because right. now people are wondering if I'm going to be taking online classes at home and not going to a campus, do I really need to fork out 20, 30, 40, 50,000 US dollars right. for tuition fees? And the opportunity cost of that is that I could go to an alternate school, right? Or I could do like an online slash part-time program or something that gives me a higher chance of being employed. I'm not sure whether that's going to be transferred to Southeast Asia as well. I think there's a good chance that would happen. And if that were to happen, right. you would notice that there will be increased competition between the schools because they're now struggling uh, to fill up their classrooms, right? And what might happen, I think, um, will be some sort of consolidation. So your bigger, well-known schools will now have the ability to increase their capacity by two times. And the reason why they'll do this is because now they're going to mandate that half of all classes are going to be online and you're going to have split classrooms. So cohort A will do classroom on a certain day, online on another day, right? And if you get students to do stuff online, you basically effectively double the capacity of your school. Right. And if the bigger schools are able to successfully do this and scale this, um, what that means is that your smaller schools and the ones at the slightly lower tier uh, will sort of get consolidated, so they might close, but they might get bought out by some of the bigger schools. Yeah. So those those are my right. predictions for, for Southeast Asia, at least. So like, where will reactors stand in this whole future that you just mentioned? Right. So we, we work with the schools. So we work with right. forward-looking schools that want to innovate on the curriculum, that want to try things which are new. We're very much an experimental school. So when the school works with us, uh, they partner with us for life. Right. We stay with them throughout the entire life cycle. We help them institute a curriculum. We help them set up their incubation centers. We connect them to the industry and to the rest of Southeast Asia. Um, and that's something that I think, you know, is likely to stay uh, with regards to how we want to work with schools. Right. Would you ever consider an exclusivity agreement then? Because I think just now you did mention that with increased competition between schools, right? maybe certain schools might want to do an exclusivity agreement with you. So would you ever consider that? Um, it's hard for me to commit to an answer right now, but what I feel is that when it comes to things like innovation entrepreneurship, it's always best to work on an open innovation ecosystem. Right? When, right. You, when you work on exclusivity, um, you preclude yourself from certain opportunities that might have come out. And frankly, you know, we, we operate on the mindset of abundance where one plus one equals three, right? And right. sometimes yeah. when you bring two competing schools together or you bring, um, you know, uh, schools that traditionally may not work with each other, like frankly, sometimes the students don't care, you know, they want to work with each other because they've got a certain idea or there's certain markets that they want to reach out to at the same time. And if you can foster yes. that type of skill collaboration and generalize reciprocity, I think that that will put the schools and the students at a better and stronger position. So, so I always, um, you know, lobby for an open innovation ecosystem. Right. 
Okay, so I would like to move a little bit into the reflection uh, part of like this podcast. So like, what was your greatest struggle thus far and how do you overcome it? Thus far, right. Um, this is a difficult question because frankly, I think the challenges change month on month. <laughs> uh, right. Yeah, I, I think there was a time where it was really difficult for us to bring on board customers or schools, right? Because the schools ask you, what's your track record? Right, and you're gonna work with students. How? Who am I to trust you, right? Um, to to give my students and their learning and development to you. So initially, that was like a difficult period for us. I think how we solved that uh, was through slowly building up our track record, right? Building a portfolio, doing trials, um, doing experimental sessions, and slowly but surely bring having having that alumni that graduate from our programs that speak for themselves. Right. I've always told my team that our alumni and our schools are our best investors, frankly. Right. So that was one, like trying to bring on board the newest, I mean, um, new customers at early stage. I think most recently, a lot of it now um, is dependent on like our overseas expansion. Because of the current virus, right, certain things have been put on a pause for a while right. because of travel restrictions, and we're still working around it. Like, what's the most efficient way for us to scale? Do we necessarily need an office? Could we work with a local partner? Could we do a joint venture without us having to be there? Like, these are all options that are on the table right now because we can't accurately predict when the situation is going to become better. Uh, personally, one of the things that I've had to work on recently, well, uh, you know, we'll be looking at the numbers more closely. So the company is moving from, from first phase to second phase, which means that I work less in the company and now I work more on the company. Right. So, you know, usually you're using a black pen, right? You're like building stuff, creating stuff. But right now you do more managerial work and use a red pen. So you edit and you vet. Right. Right. Yeah. So things that I've got to pick up, you know, are things like looking at the numbers more closely, um, you know, positioning ourselves for the next race, thinking about strategical shifts and whether we should place you know, this amount of money in this bet and then calculating the return on investment. Like all these like a managerial accounting, I think is something that I've got to pick up um, right. as I'm looking to make like more bets. Right, for sure. I'd like to go a little bit deeper into what you said earlier, which was like building your track record. So how do you, got, how do you get your first client? Well, frankly, you know, there, were, there was a point in time where we were running trial classes for close to nothing, right? So we're telling the pools, like, right. hey, do you want us on board? We're okay to do this for close to free. Just give us a token sum, um, you know, and give us a testimonial, right? Um, and when we started out, in fact, still today, when, you know, it's really the four Fs, friends, family, friends or family, family and friends. Like, who do you know, right. who you think would help you or could introduce you um, to a school? Right, or you know, to an educator who's willing to say, Yeah, you know what, I don't mind trying out this new learning pedagogy, I don't mind trying out this new content in my school or in my class. Right? Something that I've told my team is that uh, a referral is the best compliment anyone can give you, right? For yeah. sure. So, if someone says, like, Hey, you know, I really like your class, or I love what you've done for our students, like, ask for a referral because if not, then they're just paying lip service. Yeah, so we've grown. I think mostly through the track record, the experiences our students get, and through referrals. Right. So like, let's go on to the flip side then, because I think we were talking a little bit on referrals and stuff. What is your greatest 
achievement task fight reactor? My greatest achievement, I think my greatest achievement would be the alumni that we've graduated. Um, it's a gestation period, right? Right. Because when you graduate someone from, from a course or from a program, it takes them a while to find themselves, to try out new things, to experiment. But every once in a while, right. one of them will drop me an email or a WhatsApp or a Facebook message. And they'll say something like, hey, you know, because of the program, I, I picked up something and I'm now the product manager here. Or like, oh, I'm, right now I, I won this hackathon or I'm building something. Or I just raised my first round of funds. Right. Like that to me has always been the most fulfilling part about running Reactor. And I think, you know, on behalf of the rest of the team, I think that's also something that drives us on a daily basis. Like the validation that we get from our students and our educators, I think that has always been an ongoing achievement for us. Right. So I'd like to pick your brain on this idea of like, what is the quality that you feel is most important in an entrepreneur? Because like you have looked through like many batches of entrepreneurs. Right. So there are two that we look for. Um, one is bias to action. So, you know, does this person get stuff done? Do they ship things? Are they relentlessly resourceful? Right? It's right. not just about thinking. It's really about going out there and getting stuff done. So something that I always joke with some of my like other students or some of the other peer mentors that I've worked with is that whenever a student tells me that, hey, I've got this awesome idea. I want to build something. I would straight off tell them, no, it's a terrible idea. Don't build it. The ones who are stubborn enough and build it anyway are typically the ones who go on to succeed. And the ones right. who basically kind of just stop short because someone just told them, no, this is a terrible idea. Uh, they, they wouldn't have had that you know, drive or bias to action to help them get over that hump. Right. Yeah. So that's the first thing, bias to action. I think the second thing um, is something that uh, is known as autodidactism, which is the ability to learn without the need of a formal teacher. So right. entrepreneurs are really good at this. Like if you need to build something like um, a mobile app, you're not going to wait for someone to tell you, oh, you've got to pick up Java, you've got to pick up um, C Sharp or whatever, right? You're just going to go out there and you're going to learn it, you're going to build it and you're going to get stuff done. But it's being self-directed in your learning and being able to chart your own learning um, and giving yourself the permission to succeed. I think that's something that, we've seen is consistent with all our most successful alumni. Right. So like another thing that I would like to ask you is really how do you get product validation or how do you validate your idea? Because I think just now you mentioned um, that if you tell somebody that that's a bad idea, right? some people still persevere and continue trying. But how do they get product validation to know that, hey, it's a good idea? Okay, um, I guess that's really dependent on a few things. One is that whether they're operating on a B2B or B2C model, right? Right. Um, if it's a B2C model, then really that's a function about whether you've got enough people who are willing to pay um, either through, you know, pre-orders or, you know, giving them their email to say that, yeah, you know, charge me once you guys have this new product, new service that's available. Um, if it's B2B, then I think that's contingent on things like memorandums of understanding, um, letters of intent, you know, having a committee saying that, yeah, you're willing to pay you X thousand dollars if you're able to produce this new product or new service by when. Right. The validation has to be a function of value. And uh, this value typically is in, mon in the monetary term. So you've got to have someone says that, yeah, I'm willing to pay this amount of money 
for this product or service once you have it ready. Right. Okay, so I just have one last question for you. And this is a question that I ask everyone that I've interviewed thus far. Right. So what is one advice that you'll give to an aspiring entrepreneur? Or what is one advice that you'll give to your past self? I think just now we did have a conversation about um, like asking entrepreneurs about what do, do they feel is lacking in their past self. Could, could I be greedy and say three maybe? Yeah, sure, sure, for sure. Yeah, That's okay. Point, <laughs> um, one is that I think young entrepreneurs need to stop people less on Instagram and stop people more on LinkedIn. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. I think LinkedIn is a really good learning source, um, you know, just by looking at what your seniors did in terms of their career and trying to understand how they connected the dots to where right. they are today. Right. So for example, like if you follow Marcus and Siri from Carousel, right, what did they do you know, prior to Carousel? You know, what kind of internship experiences did they have? What kind of exposure did they have? And, you know, was there something pivotal that they, they went through when they were in their younger years that helped them to crystallize what Carousel was eventually going to be? So right. less time on Instagram, more time on LinkedIn, um, which could also mean, you know, reaching out to people and just asking them for chats or getting ideas or finding a mentor online. The second thing is, I think, learning to read long form. So a lot of students nowadays find it difficult to read a book from cover to cover. Right. And if you're going to work on something like that's deep tech related, especially, right? You need to have coherent thought and you need to be able to sustain this coherent thought over prolonged periods of time. Right. So you can't have that short attention span. So learning how to be disciplined and focused and read long form, I think is going to be a very valuable skill simply because more, pe- more and more people will not be able to do so. Right. Yeah, because you're so used to five second blogs and we're so used to like, um, you know, really short-term multimedia experiences. And then the third thing that I would recommend young co-founders do would be to pick up an ASEAN language. Right. So any of the languages, whether it's Thai, Khmer, Vietnamese, Bahasa, anything, right? Um, pick up an ASEAN language, understand the culture of our friends around Southeast Asia, and be able to connect with people on a very human level. I think that's going to set you apart compared to someone else who's looking at it on a transactional basis. Right. So I think I'll just like to pick your brain a little bit on like the second advice, which was to read. So is there any book that you uh, recommend for entrepreneurs? Any book? Oh, wow. There's a, there's a bunch. Where do I start? Uh, just start with all of them. Then. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So one of my favorites was What I Wish I Knew About Entrepreneurship When I Was 15 by Tina Selig. Uh, she used to be a lecturer at Stanford. And she has some really, really good TED Talks. Uh, you can be Deep Work by Cal Newport. So that's about um, learning how to put together focus time and learning how to be disciplined in producing creative work. Right. And then, um, let's see, what else is there? I think, that, okay, so some of the standard ones are like uh, Lean Startup by Eric Ries. So that's about thinking about methodology. Uh, but one of my favorite ones actually isn't specifically a, a book, but more a blog. Um, and that's the, the blog series by Paul Graham uh, from Y Combinator. So right. he has some really famous essays, uh, one of them about being relentless resourceful and the other one about doing things that don't scale. So he wrote that, I think, in circa 2008, 2009. But it's timeless advice. And I would definitely recommend any entrepreneur to just Google up Paul Graham and read some of his essays. 
Right. Okay, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. Thank you. Yeah, most welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Um, hope you guys found it useful. Thank you. All right, see you. So that was the end of the episode with Rushdie. I'd love to hear your thoughts on what do you look for in your first hire and how do you go about measuring the qualities they look for in both the short term and long term. You can always connect with me at thestartupclimb at gmail.com or through LinkedIn and just drop me a message and we can have a discussion. We have come to the end of this episode. I hope that this has been an insightful learning experience for you. To hear more from us, do follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Till next time, take care.